Good evening and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you, whether you're in person or remotely, uh, to this, the final event in the 2022-23 Jepson Leadership Forum. Thank you for joining us. We spent this year focusing on past and present failures in leadership uh, and asking ourselves where we could and should have done better. And tonight, we'll shine a light on the coronavirus pandemic and our government's response to the crisis. In January 2020, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern. According to data provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the United States has reported close to 103 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 1.1 million COVID-related deaths. In hindsight, what might we have done differently to mitigate the spread of COVID and decrease the number of COVID-related deaths? Tonight, we welcome Alex Tabarak to lead this discussion. He's the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and Professor of Economics also at George Mason and also a fellow Canadian. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. Earlier today, Jepson student Catherine Rita had the opportunity to sit down with Alex for a one-on-one -on -one conversation uh, that we videoed and will post to the website shortly. A senior from Middleton, New Jersey, Catherine is double majoring in leadership studies and biochemistry and molecular biology. She's a member of the Jepson Corps, the Jepson Student Government Association, she's a senator there, and a Richmond Scholars Ambassador. She teaches weekly science lessons to fifth graders in a school located in an underserved East End Richmond neighborhood. Since her freshman year, she's been researching mitochondrial dynamics at the University of Richmond. Her Jepson Seniors honors, Senior Honors Thesis looks at the role that political association has on scientific attitudes and perceptions. Catherine's been offered a job as a life science consultant at Accenture following her May graduation. She's also been admitted to the University of Oxford to study pharmacology there. So she has some choices ahead of her. Please welcome Catherine to the stage. Good evening, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce Alex Tabarak, Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and Professor of Economics at George Mason University. An economist by trade, he has written extensively on healthcare policy and served as an advisor to the US government on Operation Warp Speed. The public-private partnership initiated by the United States government to facilitate and accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Taborak is an outspoken critic of what he calls this country's conservative response to the pandemic, and he isn't afraid to share his opinion. <laughs> his articles have appeared in Science, the Journal of Health Economics, the Journal of Law and Economics, as well as in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and many other publications. Please help me welcome Alex Tabarak. Great, thank you all uh, for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. 
the title of the talk is U.S. Pandemic Policy, uh, Failures, Successes, and Lessons. And I think it is important that we uh, begin by reflecting a little bit on the most consequential uh, failure uh, during COVID. If you don't know, this is the Washington Memorial to uh, COVID victims. Uh, each one of these white dots is a, is a flag uh, representing one of the uh, victims of COVID. And the, the, the loved ones the, uh, of the family members had come and had written their sort of last words uh, of goodbye on each one of these kind of little flags. It was uh, really quite uh, moving. As Sandy had mentioned, you know, there are uh, over one million deaths uh, from COVID uh, in the United States. Uh, that is more deaths than from World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, from all of the U.S.'s foreign wars combined. Uh, only the Civil War uh, competes as a sort of national uh, tragedy, and now there have been more deaths from uh, COVID than even from the uh, U.S. Civil War. The deaths, of course, were the most consequential uh, aspect of the crisis, but the economic cost uh, was also uh, extreme. You know, we went from uh, an unemployment rate of 3.5%, uh, and it jumped to 15% in uh, two months in 2020. 17 million people uh, lost their jobs. Uh, Larry Summers and uh, Cutler uh, have estimated that the direct costs to GDP were on the order of $7.5 trillion. Uh, once you add in a bunch of other costs, you're talking $16 trillion. And the costs are not over. You know, we still don't know what the human capital, the education losses, what implications that has for decades going forward, or the possibilities of long COVID. Uh, these are costs which are going to uh, accumulate. And of course, this is worldwide. Uh, deaths worldwide, maybe 20 million or more. And of course, the economic cost was worldwide as well. Now, one of the things which is most frustrating, aggravating, infuriating, really, about the pandemic crisis was that this crisis was not only predictable, it was predicted, and not just in vague general terms, but in very specific terms about when and where and how. So here's an article in Science. Bats are natural reservoirs of SARS-like coronaviruses before. Killer flu pandemic, inevitable. Planning for the inevitable. And it wasn't just a bunch of sort of nerdy scientists in their obscure journals like Science and Nature. <laughs> okay. uh, this was in the popular media as well. So Bill Gates, you know, in 2015 gave a TED Talk seen by tens of millions of people. The next outbreak, we're not ready. Uh, CNN, seven reasons why a global pandemic is inevitable. Seven, you really only need one. Major motion picture, right? Okay, Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon. Time, warning, we are not ready for the next pandemic. And that of course turned out to be true. We weren't ready. Let's go back to sort of the early days of the uh, pandemic and kind of remind ourselves sort of of the uh, timeline. So January 9th, 2020, the WHO announces this mysterious 
coronavirus late, uh, related pneumonia in uh, Wuhan, uh, China. Uh, January 20th, pretty fast actually, the CDC says three US airports will begin screening, we're gonna come back to that, screening for coronavirus. January 21st, the CDC confirms the first US case, which is in Washington State. Then we have January 23rd. It's a Thursday, it's 10 a.m. The entire city of Wuhan is put under quarantine. This is the largest quarantine in world history, and it's just the beginning. This was when I began to freak out, because my view is that, at the time was that if the Chinese are willing to take such a huge hit to their economy, we have to be taking this thing very, very seriously. On the same day, January 23rd, the WHO says the outbreak is not, not a public health emergency of international concern. They quickly revised January 31st, the issue, the PHEIC. February 3rd, the US declares the public health emergency. Now, let's take a look a little bit more in detail of kind of some of the things that happened. So remember January 20th, this is, the CDC has said these three US airports will begin screening for coronavirus. But screening isn't testing. It isn't testing, okay? They're not being tested. Not even the passengers from Wuhan. And in fact, incredibly, this is from Michael Lewis's book, when local health officers set out to find these possibly infected Americans and make sure that they were following the orders to quarantine, they discovered that the CDC officials who had met them upon arrival had not bothered to take down their home addresses. They had not bothered to take down their home addresses. Remember January 21st. This is when the CDC confirmed the first US case in Washington state. And it so happens that working at the Seattle University is Helen Chu. And she's an infectious disease specialist. And she fortuitously has actually been studying uh, flu-like, people who get flu-like symptoms. And she's, she's been collecting for months nasal swabs, okay? Nothing to do with SARS, COVID-2. She doesn't know anything about it up until that point, but she's just been doing this to study flu and things like the flu. So she says to the FDA and the CDC, I've got all these nasal swabs of people with flu-like symptoms. Let's go and back test these samples so that we can see if this is spreading in our community. And the FDA and the CDC say no. No, you cannot backtest. Okay. This seems incredible, but this is like New York Times, a lab push for early tests. Federal officials said no. Finally, and heroically, Chu defies the CDC and the FDA. And she starts testing on February 25th. And she immediately finds a positive, a teenager, with no connection to Wuhan, she informs the local public health officials 
who rush to find the teenager. They stop him just as he is entering his high school. He's sent home to quarantine. Well, what happens? Later that day, the investigators and Seattle health officials gathered with representatives of the CDC and the FDA. Way to go, Helen Chu. No. The message from the federal government was blunt. What they said on that phone call very clearly was cease and desist to Helen Chu. Stop testing. Stop testing. January 30th. The US government evacuates 57 Americans from Wuhan to the Omaha National Guard base. And it turns out, again, sort of accidentally, fortuitously, that right next door to the Omaha National Guard base is a world-class center in pandemic response, Global Center for Health Security. And it's led by this guy, Dr. James Lawler. And Lawler wants to test the evacuees. Okay. Now, who is this guy? Is he like some country bumpkin doctor? No. Okay. This guy, James Lawler, he's unbelievable. He's like, he's a US Navy commander. Okay. He's an infectious disease physician. He has experience with Ebola. He has briefed the Joint Chiefs, people, the top people of the Pentagon. He was on George Bush's Biosecurity Defense Council. He helped Obama with the H1N1 pandemic. Totally, unbelievably qualified, right? He wants to test the evacuees. The CDC says no. They forbid, they forbid Lawler from testing. Even though every single one of the 57 Americans in quarantine, they want to be tested. CDC says no. Now, this is not simply hindsight bias, either. Because the Germans, they also evacuate some of their citizens from Wuhan. And the Germans test them. Right? And here's what they say. We discovered that shedding of potentially infectious virus may occur in persons who have no fever and no signs or only minor signs of infection. So right from the very beginning, asymptomatic infection is clear in the data. The Germans test, they know it. The Americans don't test. The 57 Americans are sent home without being tested. And later, James Lawler says, there is no way that 57 people from Wuhan were not shedding virus. Now, the CDC's primary job, their number one job, was to rapidly produce a SARS-CoV-2 test kit. And on January 13th, the WHO had posted a protocol for a test designed by a German firm. Okay. And the CDC could have used this protocol to produce their own test. But they decide that they're going to make their own test. They're not going to follow the WHO protocol. And in designing their own test, the CDC violates standard laboratory operating procedures, and they contaminate it. They contaminate their own test. 
And this sets the US back weeks. At a critical moment, we're set back weeks. Now, whenever the battle begins, of course, you expect fumbles. You expect not everything is going to go the way that it was planned. But these errors indicate something much more systematic and fundamental. And that is the CDC never, never had a plan for widespread testing. Even if everything had gone right according to the CDC plan, they could not, it could not have succeeded. It could not have succeeded because the CDC had no plan for widespread testing. And the reason why that is, is because the only way, the only way that widespread testing was going to happen is if you got the big private labs ramped up quickly. The ones which do the tests that you and I get when you go to the doctor and the doctor sends out Here's this lab test. Send it out. You have to get the private labs involved. But the CDC didn't do that. Instead, the CDC said, we are the monopoly supplier of test kits and testing. So right, right early on, the CDC said at the beginning, only we can run a SARS-CoV-2 test. Only we can do it. Moreover, they refused to supply the private labs with samples of the virus to help them develop their own tests. Not our job, said the CDC. Not our job. Most incredibly, most incredibly, the CDC demanded that private labs respect their intellectual property. And they engaged in weeks of negotiations with lawyers over using and building on their test. Incredible. Talk a little bit about the FDA. The FDA, as we'll talk about, had some high moments, some good moments. They had some bad moments, too, especially at the beginning, at the end. So ordinarily, these tests, which I've been talking about, laboratory-developed tests, they are not, not, FDA regulated, okay? never have been. It's routine, in fact, for labs to develop new tests without FDA approval. Okay? In fact, Paul Clement and Lawrence Tribe. Uh, Paul Clement, if you don't know, he was, I think, the uh, attorney general under uh, Bush. He's a well-known conservative uh, lawyer, very highly regarded. Uh, Lawrence Tribe is perhaps the a uh, leading constitutional lawyer um, in the United States, a liberal. Okay? So we have Paul Clement, conservative and liberal, and, and Lawrence Tribe, a liberal. And they argue that in 2015, they have a paper in 2015, and they say, the FDA's assertion of authority over laboratory-developed testing services clearly foreclosed by the FDA's own authorizing statute and by the broader statutory context. So the FDA has always sort of wanted to regulate these laboratory-developed tests, but they never have, until COVID. Now, under the guise of the emergency, the FDA says, now we're going to assert authority. Okay? And the FDA says, uh, now you have to get your test approved by the FDA. 
It's never happened before, but now, and in the emergency, you've got to submit it first to the FDA. So this completely inverts the logic of emergency. In an emergency, you want to lift regulations. You want to move more quickly. And yet here we are adding regulations and slowing things down. Most remarkably, here is what Clement and Tribe said in 2015. They warned, the FDA approval process is protracted and not designed for the rapid clearance of tests. Many clinical laboratories track world trends regarding infectious diseases, ranging from SARS to H1N1 and avian influenza. In these fast-moving, life-or-death situations, awaiting the development of manufactured test kits and the completion of FDA's clearance procedures could entail potentially catastrophic delays with disastrous consequences for patient care. And that is exactly what happened. Clement and Tribe nailed it. Now each of these errors, small in some sense, but in the context of an exponentially growing virus, they were deadly. And again, this isn't simply hindsight bias. So if you looked at South Korea and Germany, they're producing hundreds of thousands of test kits in early February, even as the CDC is struggling to do hundreds of tests a day. In fact, in South Korea, the South Korean government, they call in the beginning of the pandemic. They call in any of their manufacturers who could possibly produce tests. And they meet them at the Seoul train station. They don't even bother to get a hotel. They meet in a room at the train station. And the South Korean government says, start producing tests. Don't worry about approval. We'll handle that later. We're going to buy lots of them. Don't worry about that. And by the way, here's access to a bunch of samples of the virus so you know whether your test is working or not. They ramp up. The CDC and the FDA's failure to rapidly ramp up testing. This meant that by the time testing got going in late March, contact tracing and suppression of the virus was no longer a viable strategy because the virus was everywhere. The virus was everywhere. That's what I call the original sin of the pandemic strategy, pandemic policy. All right, so now that we have depressed everyone, <laughs> uh, let us turn to a more positive aspect of the crisis, and that was Operation Warp Speed. Okay. The idea of Operation Warp Speed was this. So, Ordinarily, a vaccine manufacturer, they're not going to start building a plant to produce the vaccine until they know the vaccine works and that it's been approved by the FDA. And only after the vaccine has been approved by the FDA are they going to actually start to build the factory to produce the thing, which can take months or even years, years just to build the factory. So what Operation Warp Speed says, said was this, it told the vaccine manufacturers, 
okay? Guaranteed sales for approved vaccines, okay? So don't worry about like with Zika or something. If it goes away, we're still gonna buy it, okay? So take some risk off the table. It paid firms to run the clinical trials, which is the most expensive part of producing a vaccine. And that made it possible to make the trials big. And with a big trial, you can go fast. It got the FDA approval to lift a bunch of regulations, like running trials concurrently. Uh, and it paid firms to start building the manufacturing plants immediately. So that the moment a vaccine was approved, the factory would be ready to go. And this was proposed by uh, Robert Cadleck uh, and Peter Marks at the FDA uh, to Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services, supported by Jared Kushner, was authorized by President Trump. It was led by Monsef Slowawi, who is a pharma executive with experience and expertise in vaccines, and by Gustav Perna, a general with expertise in logistics. And I mention these names very specifically uh, because these people have not, I believe, gotten the credit that they deserve. Talk about leadership, okay? This was leadership, okay? Uh, in a better age, I think they would have and should have been given a ticker tape parade in New York City. In our age, that did not happen. Now, all credit to this group of uh, people, remarkable group of people. Um, but it did not come out, Operation Warp Speed did not come out of the blue. In fact, it was backed by a lot of previous uh, academic research and practice. Uh, most notably, uh, Michael Creamer, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and Rachel Glenister had written a book on advanced market commitments in uh, 2004 uh, about using uh, these kind of techniques to uh, get firms to start building vaccines, to encourage them to produce vaccines. And not only had they written the book, but with Bill Gates and with a bunch of funding from governments around the world, they had written an advanced market commitment for a pneumococcus vaccine that had produced several successful vaccines. Millions of children were, evac were evacuated, were vaccinated, and 700,000 lives were saved. So they should give Michael Kramer a second Nobel Prize. Okay, 7, 000, saving 700,000 lives, pretty good. In addition, the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, actually fortuitously, not many people know this, had uh, written a chapter in 2019 about the cost of a pandemic. And they had uh, estimated this could cost trillions. So they were in a good position to advise President Trump. They also understood, people at the CEA, that FDA delay could be very costly. So Tomas uh, Philipson, who was the head of the CEA, had written on uh, FDA delay along with Eric Sun, who was also at the CEA. Um, I had also written on this topic. This goes back to Sam Peltzman, work at the University of Chicago, and uh, others. And in fact, this was where uh, uh, this is where I came into the picture, okay? This was where I came into the picture because I was asked early on in the pandemic to uh, give a talk, uh, to speak, 
with the Domestic Policy Council, the Trump White House, and the CEA, and Cadillac, and all these guys, and uh, to talk about using incentives to speed up vaccines. So uh, I got on the call to, to do this, and it turned out that they had invited me and Michael Kramer, <laughs> the number one world expert on this question. <laughs> okay. So uh, I was very direct. I was very forthright and so forth. And I said, yeah, look, the economy is losing you know, billions of dollars every single day. Okay? Uh, we have to do something about this. And you know, I told them, look, look I've said, uh, I'm known as a sort of a free market, conservative uh, you know, economist. I've never said these words in my life before. But now is the time to throw money at the problem. Okay? And I talked about human, human challenge trials and lifting FDA regulation and all of this kind of stuff. And it turned out Michael Kramer was in like total agreement. <laughs> Just like, oh, thank goodness, because otherwise he certainly wouldn't have listened to me. So after, the, uh, after this call, uh, they ask uh, Michael Kramer and myself to write a report. And Michael gets, calls all his friends, a bunch of top economists in the world, people like Susan Athey and Chris Snyder and people like that. And so we write this report. Uh, we write a report first for the US government and then the British government. And then this group becomes advisors to the World Bank. And so this is sort of my two years of uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic life. Uh, and what do we say? So what we said is that we can plausibly advance a vaccine by three to six months by spending tens of billions and saving a trillion, trillion or more. So we basically lay out what became Operation Warp Speed. Again, I, don't, I have no idea what influence we had, okay, but we sort of laid this out. And in fact, it, this became pretty obvious, became pretty obvious early on because you could see any time there was just a little bit of good vaccine news, the entire stock market jumped up, right? The airline stocks jump up, the restaurant stocks jump up, okay? And it was obvious that the vaccine manufacturers could not possibly recoup uh, in, in, in profits anywhere near the value that they would be generating in the economy as a whole. So there was a good case for paying for the clinical trials and spending this kind of money because the, in the economics language, the externalities were just absolutely tremendous. Uh, Billions are a lot less than trillions, a lot less. Okay. So we say in the New York Times, uh, in the race for a coronavirus vaccine, we must go big, really, really big. Okay. So we write this report, um, but it's not, it, it, you, you can't just say spend a lot of money, right? Okay, so you just need to be a little bit more specific uh, than that. Um, and so uh, let me tell you a little bit about the economics behind it, I promise. We won't go into too much detail, but I can tell you a little bit about it. So, I mean, the basic idea was, if one vaccine is good, how much better is two? Okay? So you can think about the more vaccines you invest in, the greater the probability that at least one of them is going to be successful. Okay? But that goes up at a diminishing rate. Okay? So you want six, seven, or more, you know, it, it, it's better, but it doesn't get that much better. Okay? So you have to think about that. And then how big a factory do you want to build when you're going to invest in each one of these candidates? You want a factory because you want the factory ready to go, right? Okay. 
So how big a factory? Like 100 million doses a month, 300 million? How big a factory do you want? I mean, the more vaccines you have, that means that you need more factories, which is expensive. Okay, so you want to kind of balance that off. And in addition, like uh, a bigger factory is better, but also at a diminishing rate. So suppose you have a factory which is capable of producing uh, 100 million doses a month. Okay. Well, then you can vaccinate 1.2 billion people in 12 months. If you double your capacity, the so 200 doses per month, uh, 200 million doses per month, well, then you can vaccinate 1.2 billion people in six months. If you double again to 400, well, now you can vaccinate 1.2 billion people in three months. But notice your first doubling saved you six months of time. Your second doubling only saves you three months of time. And you're probably giving your doses first to the people who need it most. So again, for these reasons, you kind of have these diminishing, diminishing returns. Okay? So you want to kind of balance off these diminishing returns and figure out uh, how many vaccines and how big, how big factories. And the basic uh, 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 conclusion was spend something like 25 to 50 billion, invest in 18 candidates with the capacity of 300 million vaccines per month. That was sort of the bottom line. Okay. So good news and bad news. Okay. The, uh, the bad news is that uh, the world did not go as big as we wanted, okay, as we had advocated uh, for. Um, Operation Warp Speed the American response, was by far the best. We spent about 15 billion. Okay. The UK and Europe, maybe another one or two billion. Okay. The rest of the world, almost uh, nothing. So we didn't go as big as, as what we had wanted. But the good news is, is that what we did do and what Operation Warp Speed uh, did do was very, very valuable. So uh, we calculate in a paper in Science that if Operation War Speed uh, increased uh, by, say, a billion doses, you got a, a billion doses a year earlier, okay, which is very plausible, okay, then that saved or is worth $2.2 uh, $2 trillion. Okay? $2.2 trillion, trillion dollars. So in my view, Operation War Speed had by far the highest benefit to cost ratio of any government program since, say, the Manhattan Project or DARPA investing in the internet. Okay? Tremendous, tremendously successful. Now, back to the bad news. Because there are things we should have done but didn't do. Okay? A lot. Uh, an operation more speed for masks and tests. Experiment, study the virus, human challenge trials, first doses first, fractional dosing, early doses to the nursing homes, rapid antigen tests, a lot. I'm only going to talk about uh, the first three uh, today, maybe in Q&A. We can talk about some of the others. But I'm going to just say a few words about each one of these things, which we could have done but did not do. There is a remarkable remarkable series of emails between Mike Bowen, who is an executive at Prestige Ameritech, who's a large producer of surgical masks in the United States. And he emails uh, Rick Bright at BARDA, 
and the biodefense, advanced research, development, acceleration, something like that. Okay. He emails him early on in the pandemic. He says, January 22nd, we have four N95 manufacturing lines that aren't in use. Reactivating these machines would be very difficult and very expensive, but it could be done with government help. So, possibility, an Operation Warp Seed for masks. It's January 22nd. January 25th, we're getting lots of requests for masks from China and Hong Kong. If China stops sending us masks, American hospitals could run out. He already knows what's going to happen. It's January 25th. January 27th. Rick, I think we're in deep shit, the world. So Operation Warp Speed, it followed what I call the American model of dealing with an emergency, which is not command and control, not takeover industries, OK? The American model is to use the immense spending power, the buying power of the federal government, and combine that with the ingenuity and expertise and speed of America's private sector. That's what Operation Warp Speed did. It united the visible hand and the invisible hand. Unfortunately, it was my experience dealing with many people in the government that there was no single person in charge and no single person or group really understood the American model. They did not understand the American model of responding to an emergency. So in some cases, it was random. We had a Robert Cadillac who understood it and who knew what to do and who was in the position to do something. And we got an Operation Morph Speed, but we didn't get one for masks. We didn't get one for tests. There was no widespread understanding of how to deal with an emergency using the American model. Studying the virus, studying the virus. This is a, an amazing story. So Fast Grants was a program, private program, started by Tyler Cowen and the entrepreneur Patrick Collison to raise money to study the virus. And the amazing thing about this is Tyler Cowen is my friend. He's my colleague. Okay? We've written books together. His office is just down the hall from me. Okay? That's what's amazing about it. What's amazing about it is that Fast Grants was spending this money, raised $60 million in funding, dispersed this money before the NIH had reviewed a single COVID grant. This still boggles my mind because, like, my colleague Tyler, he's not a billionaire. He's not even a medical guy. So why is he the one who is raising money to study a virus during the pandemic? It doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense whatsoever, except for the fact that our world is sort of messed up. Because look, he uh, spent money on Saliva Direct which was the highly successful spit test from Yale, used initially by the NBA and then more widely. And the person who developed this test is Professor Ann uh, Wiley at the Yale School of Public Health. 
And she has said, without fast grants, this would not have happened. She could not get the money. Without fast grants, this test would not have been developed. Okay? Now, let's just think about this for a minute. <laughs> Professor Ann Wiley is at the Yale School of Public Health. There is a pandemic on. There is a pandemic on, and there's no funding for their own researcher, so they have to go to the guy down the hall for me? It just, it's mind-boggling. And if that has not upset you, angered you enough, look at this. Stunning, look at this. Yale University Endowment posed gains of 40.2%, the $42.3 billion endowment, right? And they couldn't get money to their own researcher at the Yale School of Public Health in a pandemic to study the virus. So this tells you also, it wasn't just government. It wasn't just government. The rot is kind of deep. The rot is deep. One more, human challenge trials. So January 11th, uh, 2020, this is when data on the genetic code of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is uploaded from Yang Zhang's lab, okay, at some risk to himself, is uploaded from China, uploaded to the internet. January 13th, a virus, a vaccine has been designed. Okay. Barney Graham and others, Jeremy McClellan at the NIH and Moderna. Two days to design the vaccine. Almost everything else is testing. So everything else is testing. Now, the thing about standard field trials of testing a vaccine, the way you do it, right, is you get, in this case, 30,000 people, and 15,000 of them you give the vaccine, and 15,000 of them you give the placebo, and then you just tell them, go out, just live your life. Okay? And then you wait. And you wait until enough of them have gotten COVID so that you can tell whether there was a statistically significant difference between the placebo group and the group which got the vaccine. And that takes time. That takes time. In contrast to this is a human challenge trial. So in a human challenge trial, you take 100 people, 50 of them you give the vaccine, 50 of them, you give a placebo, and then you expose them all to the virus. And you have results within a week. You have results within a week. Now, the uh, National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases rejected human challenge trials. They said, we're not going to do that. Uh, quote, Dr. Fauci's office said the institute had no plans to fund COVID-19 human challenge trials in the future. Many bioethicists support that decision. We don't ask people to sacrifice themselves for the good of society, said Jeffrey Kahn, director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. And I'm like, what is he talking about? What is this guy talking about? Some clever young fellow 
tweeted, <laughs> bioethicists, we don't ask people to sacrifice themselves for the good of society. Also bioethicists, stay at home and wear a mask everywhere for the next two years for the good of society. Of course we ask people to sacrifice themselves for the good of society. We do this all the time. We ask this for police officers, people in the military, coal miners. We were asking it at that very moment of physicians and nurses. Of course we ask people to do this. We ask this all the time. So what on earth is going on? What is going on here? I think what was going on was a combination of what I'm going to call the emission commission fallacy <laughs> and status quo bias. Status quo bias. Um, and this is held by the public and experts. And let me give you an example. This is sort of pre-COVID uh, from vaccines. People have studied this question. Yes, why, why do people you know, sometimes not get uh, vaccines for their kids? And what some psychologists have concluded is that sort of implicitly sort of uh, some things run through people's minds, okay? They say, look, if I give my child the vaccine and there's a problem, a side effect, rare, but it's possible, there's a side effect, okay? My child is injured. It will have been my fault. I will have done something that harmed my child. And I'm gonna feel terrible. I'm gonna feel terrible about that. On the other hand, again, implicitly, on the other hand, if I don't give my child the vaccine and they end up uh, you know, being sick from the, the virus, well, that's bad, but that was bad luck. That was nature, that was ill-fortuned. It wasn't something that I did. And I think when thinking about human challenge trials, these physicians and bioethicists are thinking in the same way. Because they think, well, if I, in a human challenge trial, if I get people sick, I expose people to the virus, and they're injured, it'll be my fault. I will have done something bad. I'm going to feel terrible. On the other hand, if I let them just go out and live their lives, even though I know, like with 15,000 with a placebo, a lot of them are going to get COVID, but it won't be my fault. I won't have done something bad. And my response to this, for both the parents and the bioethicists and the physicians, is it's not about you. It's not about your feelings. It's not about how you're going to feel. Just do the thing which is best for your child or do the thing which is best for society. Okay? Be a utilitarian. Okay? Do the thing which maximizes expected value. Okay? Take your own feelings out of it and do the thing which is best for your child or which is best for society. Okay, so let me conclude. The CDC, it, it, it failed. It failed in its primary mission with consequent loss of lives. The FDA performed better than expected. They failed on tests, but they had a big win in lifting regulations to allow Operation Warp Speed to move quickly. And Operation Warp Speed was the, the shining jewel of the pandemic response. It helped to produce a novel vaccine in record time, generating trillions in value. And Operation Warp Speed followed what I call the American model. 
that is in an emergency, combined with the financial power of the federal government with the ingenuity and speed of American, the American private sector. And the American model is powerful, and we need to be thinking about this more to prepare for future emergencies. Thank you very much. everybody. Thank you guys so much for coming out and thank you so much Professor Tabarak for uh, speaking us today. Some of this information just, I mean, stunning, <laughs> crazy. Um, so you said at the end there's sort of the rock goes deep down. And I think one of the things at least I'm interested in hearing more about is if you have a diagnosis as to the underlying issue here. So one thing you might think it's that like, well, Maybe these people didn't have the competence they needed to have the forethought that they needed, and so we need more training. Another thing you might think is like, maybe they had the competence, but they didn't have the right incentives, or maybe there were perverse incentives. So if a leader wanted to go back, and <laughs> wanted to put their finger on something to, to, to switch it, would it be more competence? Would it be different incentives? Is there any sort of, I mean, I'm sure it varies between cases, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more yeah. about sort of going forward for leaders. Yeah. I mean, I wish it were as simple as something uh, like sort of an incentive. The economists are good at designing incentive structures. Um, but I, I think it was deeper than that. Um, and I think that this is a cross-society uh, problem that the American society has just become sort of slower, more bureaucratic, more legalistic, um, more veto players requiring more people to approve something. Um, I'm sure the dean understands <laughs> this, <laughs> dealing with this. Um, so it, it's everywhere. It, it, it's everywhere. Now, one thing which does seem to matter a, a little is having experienced this once, you get a little bit of muscle memory. So the uh, South Korea and Hong Kong, some of the Asian economies, they had been more affected by the avian flu uh, uh, pandemic. And so they were a little bit quicker off the ball, kind of following, as I said, kind of muscle memory. And in the United States, we had just gotten so lucky for so many years that the CDC just did no longer had the experience of how to deal with an emergency. They'd lost that institutional knowledge um, and that institutional wherewithal and guts uh, to, to do that. And uh, hopefully we'll get some of that back. Um, so I think sort of following up on that, so a couple uh, audience members had submitted uh, questions before, and one of the things that came up a lot was political polarization. Yes. So the role of political polarization both in the uh, problems with, I don't know to what extent was there, with the problems with developing uh, our responses and also, of course, executing our responses. That's sort of a big picture version of the question, and I've got right. sort of a smaller picture version of it too, and you can decide sort of what you want to focus on. So it, one of the things that's interesting to me about polarization, and especially with vaccines, is like, it seems like, so you have some economists who are giving advice about what the government response should be with respect to lockdowns. You've got health officials giving advice with respect to lockdowns and vaccines. And it seems like one thing that happens because of polarization <laughs> is as soon as uh, an expert gives uh, a diagnosis, this is what we should do, mm. it's very easy to mistrust them if you already mistrust the party that they're sort of, that they seem to be supporting. Yeah. So sort of in light of that, is there anything that you think economists or other experts can do to increase trust when they do make these sort of prescriptive, uh, prescriptive idea, uh, put forward ideas? 
um, given polarization, or is it better for them to just pull out and not make prescriptive recommendations, sort of with the risk that once people don't trust their prescriptive recommendations, they may not even trust their descriptive sort of empirical results. Right. So sort of big picture political polarization and also sort of where do you see the role of experts or experts like you in either commenting <laughs> or trying to stay out and just sort of do descriptive empirical work and let other people make the, the policy statements? Yeah. So I think the answer is not for the experts to step back. Um, we do need uh, expertise. One of the big problems was, uh, or a problem was, people in the communication strategy, in my view, were often not treated like adults. They were often treated like children. And um, so we were told right at the very beginning, you know, Jerome Powell, you know, the uh, uh, secretary, whatever, the, uh, I forget his title. Sure. Yes, thank you, yes. Um, he said, don't use masks, right? He said, masks don't work, okay? And uh, first of all, this made no sense to a lot of people because like just on your intuitive common sense, you'd figure out they'd probably do something, okay? Um, and then of course, the big flip-flop, right? Um, and so that created a lot of distrust. And on, actually on both ends because the science was never uh, masks don't work and neither was it that masks always work, right? So being treated like adults would have meant something like, you know, we have a shortage of N95s, let's leave those to uh, the nurses, but if you wanna wear a cloth mask, great, that might help, give it a shot. You know, so I think treating people like adults. Also, like in my view, this unfortunately did not work out, but um, the lockdowns, of course, were, were extremely politically divisive. My view of the vaccines was that if we get the vaccines, then we don't need the lockdowns, okay? So my view was always of getting the vaccines as quickly as possible because I thought it was something we could agree on. You know, unfortunately, that even that became politicized, right? But, uh, and incredible tragedy that hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives after the vaccines, you know, unnecessarily, right? Um, but I thought if there's things we could focus on, places where we do agree, I thought vaccines was one of those. At least get, the mandates, the mandates really were probably a mistake, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because whatever you think about the anti-vaxxers or people who are skeptical, people who are skeptical of the vaccines, there's enough of them that they have to be respected because we live, we live together. Uh, we're in a society which is a very diverse society um, and people are gonna have different views and we just have to get along. And again, I think telling them that they had to be vaccinated, that was treating them like children and that was a mistake. Okay. Um. I suppose sort of on that note, so you mentioned at the end sort of being utilitarian, mm. right? So I kind of worry, I'm wondering like, well, the utilitarian thing to do, you might think, would might be the mandate, right? Yeah. So do you have a sort of, you're utilitarian up to this point or? Well. It's a tough trade-off. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tough yeah, trade-off yeah. and we have to take into account that you know, we're, we're not North Korea, we're not China, that even when we have a mandate, 
not everyone is going to obey it. And there's a lot of reactants. You know, uh, so you, know, you, you tell your kid to eat you know, the, the vegetables, and that makes them even less likely to eat the vegetables. <laughs> okay? um, there is a lot of react. People don't like to be told what to do. And especially, they don't like to be told they need to put something in their bodies. Right? That is kind of weird for us to go around telling people that you have to put this thing in your body. Like, I get that as a kind of a libertarian. Like, I'm totally pro-vax. I love the vaccines. Give me more. I want more of them, okay? But I get that, that people don't like to be told that they have to put something in their body. That's a freaky thing to force someone to do. Yeah. So I guess sort of one, maybe second to last question, um, and then we might open it up to audience members if people want to ask a few questions so you can start thinking about if you have anything. Um, so you mentioned in the talk at one point, you were like, look, I am never going to be somebody who says, just throw money at a problem, except yes, yes. <laughs> right now. And that's actually an interesting case, because when you throw mm -hmm. money at a problem, that is when you're forcing people, mm -hmm. even if they don't want to, <laughs> yeah. to give the money to the problem so then you could then throw it at the problem. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you think about the criteria for when a government should throw money at their problem, do the government planning, do the advanced market uh, stuff. I mean, so you might think, oh, we should do it with education, healthy yeah. food, whatever. Sort of where is for you the criteria that distinguishes right. when you, when you yeah. do it versus don't, given that you will be forcing people to give money to something yes. maybe that they don't want to? Yeah. So there is this, uh, uh, you know, uh, among some of my compatriots, there is like this, an Operation Warp Speed for cancer, an Operation Warp Speed for education. And, right, yeah. and uh, I don't think that will work. I don't think that will work because you have to think of it. There were very specific um, circumstances. Uh, one was, like, the problem with cancer is not that there isn't uh, money to support some cancer drug. The problem is we don't have the science. So support the basic science, but there's no, there's no magic bullet there. In, in contrast, we knew very early on that a vaccine was possible, okay? And that the problem was not science. Operation Warp Speed solved no scientific problems, okay? The science had all been done many decades and years earlier. What Operation Warp Speed did, it solved a technological problem of how to scale this thing up and do it quickly. So that's a case where the government can, can do better at throwing money at the problem when you're just scaling something up. The second thing was that the externalities were tremendous. Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is that the, the benefits were much, 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 much higher than the cost. So you could afford a lot of government inefficiency. Um, and th that uh, uh, is rare. That is rare. Most of the problems that we deal with, we are at the trade-off stage. Uh, this problem was one where the benefits were so much higher than the cost, like the asteroid coming to, you know, coming towards the Earth, okay? Yeah. That might be an Operation Warp Speed kind of yeah. uh, uh, example. That was actually the next thing, I, the last thing I was going to ask, at least for now. And there's maybe some questions about lockdowns, but I think probably the audience will, will ask that to you, so I won't, okay. I won't push on those. But sort of, so you wrote, I wrote, in one of the columns, you wrote that a pandemic happens just often enough to be dangerous, and yet not so often that we're well prepared. Right. And there's a lot of things that could follow, that could be in that category, nuclear power plant explodes, whatever the next health crisis is. Um, Asteroids is maybe one of them. Yeah. Do you have, and this is sort of reaching beyond sort of probably what your official expertise is, but if there's so many Never things. Never stopped me before. <laughs> 
there's so many things that could be the potential next thing. Yeah. And part of you might not, so part of, so I'm, you know, part of me was stunned at what you said, but also part of me was like, well, there's so many things that probably somebody was predicting, ah, this is the next big problem. Do you have any perspectives or comments on how do we know which of the many possible <laughs> sort of next catastrophes are the ones to especially watch out for, especially from a government perspective where the right. government might be trying to prepare for it. And some yeah. of the things you just said sort of bear on that. Um, if you don't you have further comments on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good uh, uh, point. Um, in general, I do think that both personally and societally, uh, human beings in general are just not very good at these dealing with very low probability but bad, very bad events. Okay? We don't get practice. Humans are good at things that they get practice at, shooting the basketball into the hoop. You just practice and you get good at it. But like how to save for retirement, you know, you only get one shot, right? And so you got to hope that that one shot uh, works and society is the same way. Um, so, but I think the upshot of your question is, is we have to be prepared not just for the next pandemic, but for the next sort of emergency and think about not in specifics, but societally, how can we be prepared for emergency? Like one, uh, I'll just briefly give you, like one crazy thing, okay, was this, is that, you know, the US government spends trillions of dollars uh, every year, and yet uh, it was not easy to raise money for Operation Warp Speed, okay? The Trump administration basically had to kind of sneakily, you know, grab money from other programs and put it into Operation Warm Speed, okay? Sort of on, almost under the table. And the New York Times actually had an oracle. It's a Trump administration taking money from you know, lung cancer or lung research to put into you know, a wild program for Trump program for Trump vaccine. It was, it, it was awful. Um, but so we don't actually have a kind of a pot of money which you can draw on in an emergency. Okay, so I think if uh, one simple thing would be just nominally to kind of create an emergency fund uh, where you wouldn't have to go through the ordinary political process to kind of draw on that fund of money. Um, and that might, that might help a little bit in the political problems when another emergency hits. Yeah, great. Great, thank you so much. Um, we're gonna open it up to a couple questions from the audience if anybody has questions. There's somebody there um, at the back. Uh, Shannon has got a microphone. Uh, it didn't come up in in your narrative. Is it on? I can't tell. Didn't come up in your narrative, but the World Games predated the pandemic by just a few months. Is there any understanding of what the impact may or may not have been there? I mean, there have been reports that people had some kind of strange flu. I don't know if they're credible. So, so exa exactly what China knew and when they knew it, um, I think is a, uh, an open uh, question. Um, I think there was no big conspiracy to hide things, but ordinary bureaucratic procedures meant that the Chinese were probably slower than ideal, but a lot of other democracies would also have been slower than ideal under the same circumstances. I do think what this indicates is that what we need is not sort of pull the alarm, fire alarms, but we need passive alarms. And an example of that is I think every single major sewage 
uh, uh, plant in the world needs to be testing for unusual viruses every single day. And that data should just go up on the web. Okay? That's kind of what I mean by a passive alarm. You just do this as the ordinary course of business. And that turned out to be very successful. Um, uh, we have it. The CDC has a good program for it. It's not even very expensive. Okay? These tests are getting cheaper all the time. And so it is not uh, uh, beyond the can at all that every single sewage plant in the world runs these kind of tests as a matter of course. And that can give us just, even if it just gives us a few weeks earlier notice, that can make all the difference between the thing just going away completely and you never hearing about it and it turning into a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about the human challenge trials. And compared it to people endangering their lives by being policemen or whatever, well, it's nothing like that. People who are policemen want to be policemen. They choose that as a career. They get paid. And they're doing that for their own purposes. A few may do it for the good of society, but they're doing it because they like guns or they like bossing people around or whatever reason. Or they want to do it for the good of society. So someone risking their life to benefit society is someone totally different. And I, for one, wouldn't sign up for that. And I wouldn't want my children to sign up for that. I don't know. Would you sign up for it? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people did sign up for it. Yeah. Um, and but that doesn't make it ethical. Well, uh, I think that's debatable. Um, you know, people give up a kidney uh, for, their, for a loved one. Some people even give up a kidney for someone they don't know. And to me, that's, that's a heroic uh, thing uh, to do. Um, and there were lots and lots of people, tens of thousands of people, um, had offered to be in a human challenge trial. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I would support that. I would support that like I support somebody who gives up a kidney. It's not that dangerous. It's not necessarily that dangerous. Um, um, uh, some danger, for sure. But there were lots of people willing to do that, and you know, God bless them. Thank you for your presentation in Georgia Perspectives. Returning to incentives, um, do you have thoughts or insight on the government and Medicare, Medicaid, and third parties' um, reimbursements to hospital and healthcare systems around the virus? I mean, you mentioned the 1.2 or 1.4 million deaths at the beginning, and obviously there's a big difference between dying from COVID and dying with COVID. And do you have any thoughts or feelings on the way reimbursement colored the reporting of numbers in local health systems? Right. So, yeah, early on, um, so, he, he, I mean, here's the thing, is that something can be false at one point and true at another point. And I think what you're saying is exactly an example of this, is that early on, there were people who had argued that the death rate is being exaggerated um, because of uh, deaths uh, with COVID versus from COVID. And I think that was not true uh, early on. Uh, it has become more true over time um, because, yes, uh, COVID has become less dangerous, especially that now that people are, are vaccinated. And so it's not surprising that uh, people who have 
heart disease and cancer and whatever, all kinds of other things, they may show up at the hospital and they also have COVID. Um, it's just circulating now. I mean, that's, that's natural. Um, the people who collect those statistics are not unaware of that. Um, so I, I don't think we're uh, ex terribly exaggerating. And I think when you also uh, look at excess deaths, so you can say, how do deaths in 2020, 2021, and 2022, 2023, how, do the, how many deaths are we getting re relative to what we would have predicted based upon past data and the demographics? And we still have a lot of excess deaths. So I, I agree with you. Sometimes we have deaths which are with COVID but not from COVID. But we also have people dying at home. And they die at home, and they're, just never, they're never tested. So we have people dying who are, are not, who, who died of COVID, but they're also not marked as dying of COVID. So it goes both ways. Um, so yes, I, I think the statistics are never perfect. Um, and they always should be questioned. So I completely agree with you uh, that we need to think carefully about what the statistics mean. They're never as obvious as they look on first glance. Um, overall, I don't think that particular problem uh, created uh, big issues um, in reimbursement. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, we, the group of economists who were, were writing some of these reports I was working with, uh, we debated this question back and forth. Um, should we kind of push for more cooperation? Um, and the arguments are not always so obvious in that uh, there's incentives uh, to, to be first. Um, and so, there was an issue, so, so some people argued that Operation Warp Speed was, especially at the beginning, taking resources and vaccines from elsewhere, from the rest of the world, right? Our view was that we had invested so much more in building that capacity that those resources without Operation Warp Speed simply wouldn't have existed. So I think there's, there's arguments pro and con for cooperation and also for competition. Um, and the way it worked out, I wish actually other countries had competed more uh, with the United States in doing something like Operation Warp Speed. Um, so I don't think cooperation is necessarily, it's gonna be a very case by case uh, uh, question. I, I think in the, in the case of vaccines, I also wanna see lots of competition to be the first to get the vaccine. Okay, looks like that's all the questions. So, Dean Peart. Oh, oh, sorry, <laughs> out of view here. I think I can speak up loud enough. Uh, I'm a 37-year log logistician, uh, worked in the same organization as General Burnham. Do you think that had a big thing to do? He had been 
in Philadelphia in a commodity world where medicine was already being distributed. He understood that kind of timeline. He understood. So is that essential to how, when you put somebody in charge of a group like that, it made, it made it much more of a success? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I'm not a, a big kind of pro-military guy, um, uh, but without the military, Operation Warp Speed would not have been possible. Um, and the military, I believe, is one of the few organizations in American society which still is capable of turning on a dime and uh, acting uh, quickly. One reason, because in some cases, unfortunately, we do give them lots of practice. <laughs> okay? uh, but uh, you, know, you tell the military to invade Afghanistan, and you know, they'll do it in two months. right? So uh, in this case, uh, Gustav Perna, as well, had a, with the backing of the military, was you know, when uh, Pfizer or when Moderna, they needed some vats from Europe, and they sent the planes over, and they got those vats. And when the, the trains weren't running on time, they made the trains run on time. So uh, yeah, without the military, uh, Operation Warp Sea would not have been anywhere near as successful. Leadership. Thanks very much, Alex. Um, please join me in thanking Alex for a wonderful presentation this evening. Before we adjourn to a reception in the lobby uh, outdoors, I'd like to as well recognize and thank Julian Hader and Marilee Kotsia from the Jepson School of Leadership Studies for putting this uh, series together this year. Thanks very much. And see you next year. But first, we have a reception. <laughs>